Welcome to BYU After Me Too. I'm Angela. After someone has experienced sexual assault or harassment, they might need support but not know where to turn. They might not feel comfortable talking to their friends and family about it, and they might feel scared about going straight to the Title IX office by themselves. At BYU, the support they need might come from a sexual assault survivor advocate. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about 23 changes that made BYU a safer place for sexual assault survivors. Some of these changes had to do with organization and management, others had to do with Title IX investigations, and some involved education and awareness. But other changes are completely centered on providing survivors better resources. Dr. Lisa Levitt has filled the position of sexual assault survivor advocate since its creation in 2017. Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Levitt about her position and about how she connects students to resources. So Dr. Levitt, can you just kind of tell me about your role as sexual assault survivor advocate? My role on campus is kind of unique. I am a completely confidential resource on campus. So I don't report to anybody. I don't report to the honor code, to Title IX, to professors, to parents, um, to anybody. It's completely confidential, which I think is probably the most important thing for students to know. Um, My role is as a support person and a resource person for any student, faculty, or staff who has experienced sexual assault, stalking, domestic violence, rape, um, any of those things on our campus. And it doesn't have to have been, I shouldn't say on our campus, but anybody on our campus who's experienced those things, I guess would be a better way of saying that. It can be something that happened in your childhood that's now triggering you while you're here at BYU. It could be something that happened this morning. So it doesn't really matter where it happened. But my primary role is to provide support and resources for students. Right. Um, And then can you talk about some of those other resources that you might connect a student to? Okay. So I connect to students both on campus and in the community. Um, While I'm not at all associated with the Title IX office, I do work very closely with the Title IX office, and I think that's a great resource on our campus. They can do some things that I can't do. They can If a student needs to move, for example, or they need some help with their job or whatever, Title IX can do that. So I can connect them to Title IX. I also go with them to Title IX quite a bit and support them through that process. Um, I connect also with women's services. They're a great resource on our campus. And then, of course, counseling and psychological services. I work pretty closely with them. Um, In terms of off-campus, uh, if a student is interested in reporting this to the police, we can I can help them find the jurisdiction and, again, go with them to those um, discussions with the police if they want me to. 
Um, but it's also not just providing the resource, but sort of talking through what might be the pros and cons. Why might you want to do this? What might be frightening about that? So we, we work with the police. Um, I can connect them with the justice system. I don't really work with that very often, but if a student you know, needs some legal help, we can kind of navigate that. Probably the thing that I do the least. Um, but the important one is also if a student comes in and wants a rape kit done, um, I can certainly help them through that process, connect them with the Center for Women and Children in Crisis, which is a great resource in our community, um, and make sure that someone's there with them throughout the whole entire process. So it's not just on campus, it's just in the community as well. Right. Um, and so can you kind of explain the difference between the services you provide compared to the counseling and psychological services? Yeah, so my services aren't counseling. I, even though I am a licensed psychologist, I don't do counseling per se with students. Um, I obviously do some emergency and crisis counseling because everybody that comes into my office, whether this is something that happened five years ago that's just being triggered or something that happened last night, they're traumatized. They're in trauma mode at that point. And so obviously there's a little bit of crisis counseling that happens. But the counseling and psychological services would offer ongoing, longer-term counseling to help them deal with the experience. So I'm not counseling them through the experience. I'm more providing them with those resources and helping them make those connections. Right. Thank you for that distinction. Um, so you mentioned trauma mode. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe some of the symptoms of trauma that you see? Yeah, a lot of times, uh, n- number one, um, ability to focus and concentrate. Obviously, if something has happened to you, that just kind of takes over your whole mind. If it has been, if it's more recent, um, they can still kind of be in shock. So you're seeing things like maybe not making so much sense. Maybe the storyline of what happened isn't as clear. And there's very you know specific research that supports why that happens um, to people who've been sexually assaulted. Um, so so we see a lot of that, a lot of confusion. Um, really, it's kind of a whole spectrum from I can't study. I'm having trouble studying too. I can't even go to class. I can't leave my house. I can't go up on campus. And we see kind of everything in between. Also, when a student uh, is in trauma mode, that affects their relationships. They're often withdrawing or not connecting. Um, There's a lot of shame and guilt surrounding sexual assaults. So telling people and accessing the resources that they would normally access. So they're kind of withdrawing from other people. Um, We see some depression and anxiety start to to come in that can increase quite a bit as well so lots of different symptoms but those are probably some of the most common thank you um and then how can students utilize your services um where is your office located and things like i that? am housed inside of the counseling and psychological services office so there's a lot of different ways they can get a hold of me uh, they can literally walk into counseling and psychological services um, and if i'm available i can see them right away And if I can't see them like in the next five minutes, I can usually see them pretty quickly. I try and get students in as quickly as possible. Um, They can call me directly on my direct line. I don't know if you want me to give you the number or whatever. That's okay, yeah. Okay. Um, They can um, contact me at just advocate at byu.edu. A lot of professors now know about me. The health center is aware. Um, If they really can't remember any of the above, they can just call the BYU police and they can connect me 
to them. So a lot of different ways. A lot of it is by referral. I have a lot of people referred from professors, Title IX office, women's services, BYU police refer a lot. So so there's a lot of different ways they can contact me. They can just go on the BYU website and type in advocate and my name and information comes up. So. Great. And in those cases of referrals, are you given personal contact information and then you reach out to the student or how does that work? Um, it depends. It happens in a variety of ways. A lot of times, if it's women's services or Title IX and they've gone there first, they'll literally walk them into my office. Oh, okay. Um, if that doesn't happen, uh, Title IX will quite often say, I talked with this person and they'd like to meet with you. Here's their contact information. Um, and I usually just do that through email. So I'll just send them an email saying, I've got your name from Title IX. I'm here if you need me. Um, so that's probably the two most typical ways is either people walking them over or giving me the contact information. Or a lot of times they'll give them, my cards are just about all over campus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretty much everybody has some of my cards. Um, so a lot of times they'll just give them a card and the student will contact me directly. Right, that's great. Um, and then how long has this position um, been here at BYU? Uh, I'm the first person that has ever been in this position. It was created um, as a result of the big campus-wide study that was done um, back in 2016 and then they suggested I think it was 23. I can never remember if it was 23 or 25. I think it was 23. Yeah, I believe it was 23. 23 <laughs> changes, um, one of which was creating my position. Um, and then I was hired at the end of December and started on January 23rd, 2017. So coming up to three years. Right. So. Okay. Thank you. Because it seems like exactly at that time is when a lot of these changes were made. That's when the Title IX office yeah. became separate from the Honor Code office and things like that. So it's great that your you as a resource was added as a part yeah. of all of those positive changes. Um, so I am not sure how much you'll be able to speak to this question, but mm -hmm. um, have you seen the culture of students and professors change since these changes, these institutional changes have been made? Um, yes. Um, most in, in positive ways, I think I have seen a, quite a few changes. I think students are more willing to come forward. Um, the one thing that I think was is important to know is that from the very beginning, um, the administration of the university uh, were adamant that this should be a confidential position. Um, and I think that that was really important because even though that's a law now, at the time, that was not um, necessarily a law, but a lot of advocates weren't confidential, but they insisted that that was confidential. So I think that in and of itself has made it a much more safe environment to come forward. Um, I have seen professors much more willing to refer people, um, and well, just because they have a place. I think before they, it was women's services or maybe the counseling center, but there wasn't a designated place. I have seen a change in the attitude as well. Um, change is always slow, um, but, but there have been changes in terms of believing um, survivors and you know, helping, helping them get the resources that they need. So I think, yeah, there has definitely been a change in the positive direction. Definitely. Um, and as far as conversations like this that are being had on mm -hmm. campus, um, mm -hmm. in what ways do you feel that BYU needs to improve in creating a space for sexual assault survivors? Uh, that's a hard one because I think uh, it's, it's interesting as I as I go around to different conferences for advocates around the country, 
um, when this position was created, I think BYU, for a number of reasons, uh, along with a lot of other universities in the country, was the whole Title IX thing was kind of interesting. Um, but I have noticed since we've started this program that we're actually ahead of a lot of universities in terms of creating a safe place. And so I think that we, we there's always change that can be made. We can always improve and always move forward. Um, I love what Title IX has done with ha and women's services with having a lot of events, a lot of awareness. I think that needs to continue. Uh, I also just think educating our the students on a personal level, having them you know, go to websites, look this kind of stuff up, be familiar with how do you help a friend. Um, a lot of it is going to happen on the individual level um, as well as on the institutional level. So could we do more? Yes, I think we could do more sort of proactive stuff. Um, I know that they're going to do, they did a, a survey two years ago of students, and I know that they're planning on doing that, I believe, next year again. Things like that, gathering information, continuing the ongoing conversation, I think are vitally important. Yeah, absolutely. How about for sexual assault survivors themselves? Like, how does your resource help them through their healing process? I think the most important thing, the thing that I see the most often is instantly, the first thing that they feel is just this sense of relief. Oh my gosh, there's somewhere safe. There's somebody that knows the resources. There's somebody that's here to support me. I don't have to do this alone. And I think that is probably the thing that I see first. Um, I a lot of times have students say, you know, oh, I'm so grateful that there's somebody like you on campus that I can talk to about this, that knows that I'm helping them understand, you know, why they reacted the way they did. Um, we all think if that ever happened to me, I would fight and scream and kick and do everything, and then we don't. And so helping them understand that I think is pretty important. So I, f I feel like just having somebody in their corner is huge for a survivor because they're feeling confusion, they're feeling guilt, they're feeling shame. Um, you know, they, they're, like I said earlier, they're not being able to function on a daily level and just have someone say, hey, we can do this together, I think is probably the most important thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it really is for survivors. Mm -hmm. um, and so from, from what you've told me, a lot of these changes to BYU came in the year before the Me Too movement had started. Mm -hmm. um, so looking back on it now, um, do you feel that the Me Too movement has impacted BYU? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was such a huge thing and such a you know national, I mean, just across the country, but probably, well, across the world, really. So I think the Me Too movement definitely impacted it. I think it empowered women. It empowered them to stand up and say, hey, you know what? Me, that happened to me too, exactly like they say it. I think the other thing that it did that maybe we don't often think about is just the education piece in terms of people standing up and saying, oh, this happened to me. I have so many survivors that come into my office that say, well, I'm not even sure if I was sexually assaulted. I think I was. Um, what's interesting is I've never ever had someone say that to me and then I said well actually no you weren't it's always yes you were um, so just the education piece of the Me Too, Too movement I think was huge um, it allowed students to say this happened to me which I think in our particular culture is is hard I think it's really difficult for students to stand up and say hey me too so I think it it had a huge impact yeah um 
And so you mentioned that in our particular culture, this may be hard for people to acknowledge sexual mm-hmm. assault. So why mm-hmm. do you think that is? Um, I think it's just because of the way that we talk about um, sexuality in general. And that has changed in huge, huge improvements um, across our culture. And by that, I'm talking particularly LDS culture. I, uh, huge strides. Um, you know, we, it's talked about much more openly now. And I don't think that that's just typical to the LDS culture. I think that's typical across the world. We're talking about it more in general, and so that's reflected um, in the LDS church as well. I think a lot of times women, it's the shame and the guilt aspect. Um, They feel like, oh, I'm going to get kicked out of BYU. This must have been my fault. Um, So I think that just all plays into it. And, And just a fear, which is typically not going to be the case, but but a fear of the consequences. Right. But I am seeing a big decrease in that. Um, Seeing, you know, phenomenal bishops and state presidents and just a lot more education in general on on campus and and in the church that is hugely helpful, hugely to survivors. Mm -hmm. And I I like that for both the Me Too movement and for changes in our our LDS culture, you've talked about education Mm -hmm. because it seems like that really is the difference between someone acknowledging their own sexual assault or acknowledging others and not. So I think the, the, the two words that, that, I always think of when I think of this are education and permission. So they're more educated about, well, maybe I was sexually assaulted, but they're being given permission to talk about it. Um, they're being, being permission to say, yes, this happened, and it was awful, and I need some help. And I think, you know, for a, a long time, women didn't feel like they could talk about it. They weren't supposed to talk about it. But So I think those two things are, are very important. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Education and permission. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, You're so welcome. Those are all the questions that I had, but I want to leave some time open for you to mm-hmm. just talk about anything else that you'd like to discuss. Um, gosh, that's an, there's a lot of things <laughs> running through my mind. I, I think most importantly, I just want survivors to know that the culture has changed, both on a national level, on a state level, just on, on a you know school level, and that there are a lot of safe places, not just myself, but there are places, particularly on this campus. You know, women's resources is confidential. I'm confidential. Counseling and psychological services is confidential. Um, just some amazing resources, and that they don't have to go through this alone, and that seeking help is it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot for someone to come and say, this happened to me, can you please help me? Um, but when they do, the change can be really significant in their life. So I hope that if they, I mean, they're welcome to reach out to me, but I hope if not, they're going to reach out to somebody to tell somebody um, that can help get them the help that they need. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. As you just heard from Dr. Levitt, there are a lot of resources for helping students on campus. Next time, we'll hear another Me Too story from a BYU student. Thanks to Abner Apsley for the music. This is BYU After Me Too. I'm Angela.